Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Week in Review. The countdown to Election Day reads T-12 days and counting, with tomorrow's debate the last chance for both candidates to sell their vision to the American people. All of this is happening in a moment of historic voter turnout, with over 35 million votes already cast. And despite the fact that last week's town hall was like a thousand years ago in our current hyperspace news cycle, the juxtaposition of America's choice for leader still burns brightly from that evening in the forefront of my mind. To caricature the two candidates, it's quite simply Mr. Rogers versus Macho Man Randy Savage. The truth is inside of us, and it's wonderful when we have the courage to tell it. Calm versus crazy, intelligence versus conspiracy, empathy versus anger. You like that, don't you? Because you can't handle the success of the Macho Man Randy Savage. Let's look now at what transpired in just the past week as the Donald J. Trump shit show express continues its American tour, with the polls continuing to show him losing and losing badly. While the campaign wishes to remind just about anyone who will listen that the 2016 polls were showing Trump losing across the board, only for him to pull off the historic upset, there are key differences between then and now. The first being Trump's inability to tarnish the former Veep, despite a barrage of last-minute negative advertising Twitter attacks, and stump speech smears. Nothing is landing, including the Hunter Biden bullshit. Vice President Biden, you owe the people of America an apology because it turns out you are a corrupt politician, okay? While Trump's unfavorability ratings have continued to rise, Biden is still regarded favorably by a majority of voters. This is a stark contrast to 2016 where Hillary Clinton proved to be a deeply unpopular candidate, and Trump was able to squeak out a victory on the margins by getting voters to hold their nose and vote for what they saw as the lesser of two evils. This time around, the president, lest he forget, is the incumbent and must run on his record. And we know what's happened there. I'm not at all apologetic for having fought for my values against his in places where I think his um, are deficient, not just for, for a Republican, but for an American. So the, the way he kisses dictators' butts. The United States now regularly sells out our allies under his leadership. The way he treats women and spends like a, a drunken sailor, he mocks um, evangelicals behind closed doors. His, his family has treated the presidency like a business opportunity. He's flirted with white supremacists. At the beginning of the COVID crisis, he refused to treat it seriously. First, he ignored COVID, and, and then he went into full economic shutdown mode. I mean, he, he was the one who said 10 to 14 days of shutdown would fix this, and that was always wrong. I mean, and so I, I don't think the way he's led through COVID has been reasonable or responsible. I'm worried that if President Trump loses, as looks likely, um, that he's going to take the Senate down with him. I'm now looking at the possibility of a, of a Republican bloodbath in the Senate. And that's why I've um, agreed to serve on his re-election committee, and it's why I'm not campaigning for him. So before I introduce my next guest, I want to examine the week that was to give you the lowdown on what's setting the Trumpian agenda for the week to come. Somebody said to me the other day, you're the most famous person in the world by far. I said, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. They said, yes, you are. I said, no. They said, who's more famous? I said, Jesus Christ. The New York Times reported on Tuesday that voters prefer Biden over Trump on all major issues. 
This, according to new polling data that showed Biden leading the president 50 to 41 on everything from the economy, law and order, COVID response, and the choosing of Supreme Court justices. So let's look at the so-called big six. They are Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, those sort of upper Midwest states, uh, including Pennsylvania, as well as North Carolina, Florida, and Arizona. Joe Biden leads the president in all of them by anywhere from three to nine points. They write that barring a calamitous misstep, like having a heart attack on stage Thursday night or forgetting his own name, there's simply nothing that can boost Donald Trump's electoral fortunes now. The biggest divide comes with voters believing Biden is better equipped to unify the country. Here, Trump trails the former vice president 55 to 36 as he continues to use divisive and dangerous rhetoric on the campaign trail as he panders to his reliable base of QAnon adherents and other right-wing extremists. It's the enemy of the people. Our media is the enemy of the people. It's very, very dangerous what they do. The president on Tuesday morning went on Fox and Friends, which long ago became a de facto arm of the Trump disinformation apparatus to order, Attorney General William Barr to appoint a special prosecutor to look at allegations of corruption stemming from Hunter Biden's laptop. We've got to get the Attorney General to act. He's got to act. And he's got to act fast. He's got to appoint somebody. This is major corruption, and this has to be known about before the election. Knowing the Donald Trump playbook as well as I do, he will continue to push this boulder up the hill, hoping that something sticks. It's a likely preview of Thursday's debate. The president is counting on the Hunter Biden story to salvage his campaign, or at least make voters think twice about Joe Biden. The irony of this whole situation is that Fox News refused to take the story from Giuliani as he found him most likely compromised by Russian disinformation. Alex, there are fears that what Giuliani is now pushing here in the United States could actually be part of Russia's latest and very massive disinformation campaign in the US presidential election. We are clearly entering a third peak of the coronavirus with infections now topping 65,000 daily. But President Trump continues to pretend as if the virus is not only under control, but turning the corner. Instead, the president has tried to blame the messenger, insisting that voters are tired of hearing about the virus, returning to his conspiratorial bullshit that COVID is not a deadly virus, but a media construct aimed at denying him the presidency. They're getting tired of the pandemic, aren't they? Getting tired of the pandemic. You turn on CNN, that's all they cover. COVID, COVID, pandemic, COVID, 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 COVID. You know why they're trying to talk everybody out of voting? People aren't buying it, CNN, you dumb bastards. They're not buying it. With this in mind, he has continued with his stunningly reckless rally strategy, packing in thousands, often without either social distancing or masks. Early in the week, as Trump crisscrossed the Southwest, his rallies were less about cheerleading than airing a litany of grievances and wrestling with his own dire state. But this is a man with an inhuman level of hubris. He knows more than his scientists. He knows better than the polls. In Trump's mind, he's not only right, but winning. This is a dangerous combination in any leader, both stupid and confident. I said, well, my hair is very powerful. It's very strong. It can handle it. But I voted just in case. It may get pretty bad, but it's pretty windy. In Macon, Georgia, Rally-goers were given front-row seats to the terrifying inner thoughts and fears of Donald Trump 
as he held forth on the prospect of his potential loss in what resembled an amateur psychiatry session. If I lose, I will have lost to the worst candidate, the worst candidate in the history of presidential politics. If I lose, what do I do? I'd rather run against somebody who's extraordinarily talented. At least this way I can go and lead my life. In the waning days of this chaotic campaign, Trump isn't just ignoring the spread of COVID-19, he's actively encouraging it through his actions. To satisfy his own ego, he's preaching a fucked up mixture of anti-mask, anti-doctor, and anti-science testimony. With Mark Meadows, pseudo-Dr. Scott Atlas, and every Fox News pundit in the choir. It seems now that he has stopped trying to fight the virus, but is instead literally campaigning against it in every stop encouraging his MAGA army to do the same. And I don't agree with the statement that if everybody wear a mask, everything disappears. Hey, Dr. Fauci said, don't wear a mask. Our Surgeon General, terrific guy, said, don't wear a mask. Everybody was saying, don't wear a mask. All of a sudden, everybody's got to wear a mask. And as you know, masks cause problems too. A lot of people don't want to wear masks. There are a lot of people think the masks are not good. And there are a lot of people that, as an example, who you have- Who are those people? I'll tell you who those people are. Waiters. Masks have problems, too. In restaurants, there are people with masks, and they're playing around with their mask, and they have it, their fingers are in their mask, and then they're serving with plates. I mean, I think there's a lot of problems with masks. Are you worried at all about your supporters being exposed to COVID? No, because uh, my supporters are very smart, and they do. A lot of them wear masks, and some don't. That's their choice. And uh, no, I, I think we have a very safe environment. As if you can banish it away by simply changing the subject. And if you're in the death cult, you must actively disdain Anthony Fauci as well. This man must now have a full-time security detail with him because of Trump's constant and dangerous hectoring. The MAGA army in return has made Fauci subject to a terrifying litany of death threats and potential violence. Think about this for a moment. This is the person in charge of our virus response. He is inherently apolitical, a doctor. But in Trumpian logic, because he tells the truth, he is then a threat to be silenced. But he's called a lot of bad calls. He said, don't wear a mask. And he said, don't ban China. They were bad calls. He admits that. And I don't hold that against him. If I did, I wouldn't have him. I don't want to hurt him. He's been there for about 350 years. I don't want to hurt him. All of this points to the ravings of a lunatic desperately clinging to power and watching with horror as his once almighty grasp begins to unravel. Nowhere in this is more evident than with Trump's plea towards suburban women who have dumped him like an abusive spouse. The numbers here are startling. According to a recent New York Times Siena College poll, in 2016, the suburbs powered the president's victory with exit polls showing that he won those areas by four points. Now, polling in swing states shows Trump losing those very same voters by historic margins, fueled by a record-breaking gender gap with Biden leading by 23 points in battleground states among suburban women. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why. The man is a disgusting misogynist with a penchant for attacking women. Then I heard I'm not doing well with suburban women, okay? I got rid of, no, it's true, they say that. But of course they said that last election too. He will do terribly with women, terribly. And then when I did great with women, they said, man, he did well with women. Same thing's gonna happen. In 2016, 
These women, by and large, held their noses and voted for Trump, despite the gnawing feeling in the back of their minds that they were voting for a complete and total fucking pig. I know this better than most, having been on the receiving end of his gross and unwanted advances towards my daughter as a teenager and later when she was an intern in the White House. But this pattern of behavior was already well documented prior to the 2016. And still they voted. Well, not anymore. The Trump campaign has grown increasingly alarmed by what these polls were saying and recognized that Trump's path to victory depended on clawing some of them back to no avail. And somebody said, I don't know if the suburban woman likes you. I say, why? But we had this. <laughs> I love you, too. They said they may not like the way you talk. So can I ask you to do me a favor? Suburban women, will you please like me? Remember? Please. Please. I saved your damn neighborhood, okay? The other thing, I don't have that much time to be that nice. You know, I can do it, but I gotta go quickly. We don't have time. They want me to be politically correct. Oh, yes, let's discuss it. Let's talk about it over the next 10 years. No, no, no. Okay? And I think we're gonna see that the women really like Trump a lot. That's happened last time, remember? Remember last four years ago? Four years ago, they said, women will never vote for him. I said, why am I so bad? They said, the women will never vote. Then I got 52%. They said, what the hell happened with the women? He has trotted out a familiar surrogate like Sarah Sanders Huckabee to declare him not a Nazi misogynist, as well as the creepy Kimberly Guilfoyle and super liar Laura Trump, hoping reframe the president as a gruff but caring uncle. They ask you not to listen to what he says. But like Governor Gretchen Whitmer said in her post-kidnap plot press conference, Mr. President, words do matter. Let's listen to the tape now from this week's Trump rallies and TV appearances for a flavor of just how Trump is battling his gender problem. Women have never done better, have never been more economically emancipated and empowered than under President Trump. And now for the main event. My guest today on Mea Culpa is Olivia Troyeth. She had a front row seat to the lunatic ravings and shambolic response offered by President Trump as a senior member of the administration's COVID task force. Troyeth, a lifelong Republican and national security expert, served in the George W. Bush administration and held senior positions at both the Pentagon and Department of Homeland Security. She joined Vice President Pence in the White House as his Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor and was appointed to the COVID task force at the onset of the pandemic. It was here, attempting to fight both the President's dangerous and self-serving declarations along with the demands of his sycophants and enablers that she found herself unable to do her job. Troye describes an atmosphere dismissive of masks and social distancing and more worried about the president's re-election than the safety of the American people. So, choosing country over party, Troye resigned in August, joining Republican voters against Trump to warn people about what she had witnessed firsthand and hopefully put a stop to the madness once and for all. Let's listen now to that conversation. So Olivia, let's jump right into this. Yesterday, in a tweet directed at Tim Murtaugh, in regards to the administration using quotes from Dr. Anthony Fauci out of context, you said the following. The latest at Real Donald Trump campaign ad 
Using Dr. Fauci's comments out of context is pathetic. I witnessed the president and White House leadership repeatedly disrespect Dr. Fauci and ignore his advice, leading to POTUS's colossal failure of a pandemic response. At Tim Murtaugh, how dare you? Tell me about that. You know, I think when I saw that campaign ad hit, uh, I'm not going to lie, I saw red. I, I was... I was furious. And the reason I say, how dare you is how dare they take this doctor's words and twist them in a manner that they're trying to portray is supportive of the Trump administration and this president after everything they have put this man through after the attacks that they have placed on him, after how outspoken the president has been against, you know, Dr. Fauci and the tweet saying he's wrong and the article with Peter Navarro saying all the times Dr. Fauci's been wrong. I mean, I was in the White House for that. I remember waking up the morning in shock at the article about Dr. Fauci and all the times he's wrong. And I kept thinking, what is wrong with you people? What is wrong with you that this man is a national treasure? He sits in the meetings. He gives us facts. He tells us the science. He has been warning about the severity of the virus from day one since January. And I just... To see an ad was just so egregious that they would take these words out of context where he was talking about his task force colleagues, the people who were the experts and the other doctors and all of us in the trenches working countless hours day and night back in March when we were trying to get our, like, our hands and, and just wrapped around the severity of this and this pandemic and doing everything we could. And to take that and tell the, you know, turn it upside down and say, oh, yeah, he was praising me. I just thought it was absolutely disgusting and appalling. Well, are you trying to say that Donald Trump is not an expert in science? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> well, he certainly is surrounded by the experts that know the science, but he certainly does a great job of ignoring those experts and pretending that he knows best, which we all know is not true. Right. He doesn't just ignore the science. He doesn't just ignore the experts like Dr. Fauci. He actually goes to the opposite side of the spectrum. And then just as soon as things continue to go bad, as Dr. Fauci predicted that they would, he doubles down. I mean, I don't know if you've seen this, but you know, you watch Mark Meadows as he goes and he speaks to the press and this idiot and a half He's not even an idiot. He's an idiot and a half, decides that he wants to remove his mask. And then people turn around and say to him, you think maybe you could put that back on? He's like, well, then I'm not going to continue. I know I'm, I'm not going to speak through a mask. Why not? Everybody else in the world is doing it. I mean, look, Miles Taylor remarked yesterday that the polls show at real Donald Trump losing badly with women. He'd be doing worse if they saw the misogyny I witnessed inside the Trump administration. You then responded, having worked in several administrations, that you had never been more aware of your appearance or of being humiliated in meetings than during your time in the Trump-Pence White House. Take me through your experience as a woman working in the administration and what it was like working for a known misogynist. Well, I have to say that it was it was challenging. It was hard. I have a long career in Homeland Security. Obviously, it's mostly for a long time. It was mostly a male dominated business, but I certainly was never treated as less 
um, by my bosses or colleagues. And I certainly never worried about whether my appearance was good enough to be sitting in a meeting. And I remember specifically, especially the very first time that I was in a meeting with the president and the first task force when he came in and we were going to brief him and the doctors were going to discuss and we're going to go through the whole agenda. And I don't, I can't believe that I actually sat there and I remember looking down at my clothing and looking around the room and it was a weekend, I believe. And I, I remember being so self-conscious because I've heard the comments made and I've heard that, and I've heard from others talk about how demeaning he was and disparaging he has been towards appearances, towards women. And I remember thinking to myself, is my hair okay? Did I, am I wearing enough makeup? Like, is he going to look at me with disgust? Is he going to say something about, about me? And that I've never in a million years, actually, I've never worried about that in a meeting, especially with a senior, you know, cabinet official. That's just never been a thought or crossed my mind. I've always been focused at the work at hand and I've always been focused on, you know, whatever was on the agenda or whatever project was in front of me that was really, in this case, the safety of the American people in the terms of the, that pandemic. But the fact that that was a thought that would cross my mind after an extensive career of, you know, in national security and a, and a fairly successful career that I have worked so worked for so hard and diligently and dedicatedly, I think speaks volumes at the type of environment that the president creates and encourages. Can you name anybody who specifically in the White House administration made you feel that way? It was the president. The president himself. Anybody else? You know, I think it's just kind of a known, a sort of a, a, a thing with the environment there, to be honest. And I don't know why I felt so intimidated based on whether my looks would measure up. But, you know, Donald Trump surrounds himself with, I'm sure you know this well, beautiful model looking women. That's that's just me being honest, right? And I'm sure you've seen it. The reason I'm asking that question is because my I had my daughter when... I first, when Mr. Trump first became President Trump, she went and she worked in the White House as a summer intern, and she was going to work for the First Lady. Uh, that didn't pan out too well. There really wasn't much going on. And so she ended up uh, working for Amarosa. And Amarosa wanted to take Samantha to the Oval Office to show her um, the Oval Office to say hi to Mr. Trump, to President Trump, at which point in time, the very first second that he saw her, the first words out of his mind is, oh, there's my beautiful Samantha. He goes, is this girl not gorgeous? And so, and you're right, because appearance to Donald is everything. It is extremely hard for him to engage somebody that he doesn't believe has some type of an appearance. Um, and he certainly doesn't put them front and center. So I, um, what, what did you do about it um, after he made comments or after others made comments? I mean, you don't do anything about it. I, you know, you just kind of try to put it out of your head. And you, I, you know, I had so much work to do and I was so focused on the crisis at hand that that's really where my head was. But, you know, you, you, I, I've heard the president refer to sweetheart and, you know, is it, doesn't she look great? And isn't she beautiful? I've, I've heard that. I've heard it when we've been prepping for press briefings. I've heard it in the hallways and, I mean, that is what gets inside your head sometimes. And it's just, you know, I consider myself not to be an insecure person. I consider myself to be pretty level-headed and very strong and a woman who is strong. But in this sort of environment, 
it's just human. It's me just being a human being thinking he's going to look at me. And what if, what if I'm not, my looks aren't measuring up? Like, what is he going to say? Is he going to embarrass me? Yeah. My daughter said the same thing, which is interesting. Both of you, university of Pennsylvania graduates, um, <laughs> you know, um, regardless of your looks, uh, both brilliant, you know, both brilliant women and should, it, it shouldn't take place. I did want to then ask you, Dr. Fauci won the president that we need to curb the spread of COVID over the summer or that we would face a very hard winter. What are we facing with the onset of colder weather with 50,000 cases and rising? I think we are facing a very, very difficult situation in the coming months. And I have, quite frankly, I've had this in the back of my head and I've known it because I have heard Dr. Fauci and others on the task force discuss this and to say, we, we need to be preparing now. We need to be preparing the American public. We need to make sure that the behavior that we are the encouraging and telling people, the slowing the spread, the social distancing, that really matters now because we want to get this caseload down, the daily caseload down before we start to go into the fall and the winter when we know the flu will be predominant and COVID. And the last thing we need is to be at a rate of cases that is much higher than what Dr. Fauci and others believed was to be the case. And I believe Dr. Fauci has said that, you know, he would be much more comfortable if we were at a rate of, you know, less than 10,000 cases a day. But we are at over 50,000 right now, and it's increasing. And I think that we are going to face a very, very harsh reality in the coming months. And the narrative that Donald Trump is saying, you know, everything's fine and continuing to play down the pandemic by doing these rallies and everything, he is just creating an even more challenging scenario for all of us. Do you remember when our idiot in chief turned around and said, it's like a flu, don't worry, it'll be gone in a few days. And then after that, when he realized that wasn't true, he then created another nonsensical lie, which is that the summer heat would kill off the, the virus. And of course, that didn't work. And now that we are coming into the winter, into the colder months, and so with 50,000 cases per day and rising, I mean, was this ever brought up to our commander of chaos by Dr. Fauci or anybody? He was briefed repeatedly on it. He, they have been sounding the alarm on this for months. And in addition to that, you know, when he came out and said it's no worse than the flu, I, I just said, here we go again, undermining the doctors and everything they have told you. You have been briefed on this. They have told you that this is far more contagious and likely to be deadlier than the flu. This is not the same thing. These are two totally different things. And the COVID will, will get worse as time goes on if we don't get ahead of this. Well, part of the mission of Republican voters against Trump is to help those in the administration looking to get out, but afraid of the reprisals, to help them to find a way to escape the Trump death cult. Are you hearing from people in the administration who still want to leave, especially with the White House COVID outbreak, but don't have the mechanisms to do it? You have certainly heard from colleagues who, uh, you know, have told me they respect the fact that I have decided to speak out. They respect Elizabeth Newman and Miles Taylor and others for, for, for telling people how hard this whole situation was for all of us and what the reality is really when it comes to Donald Trump. And you know, I, I hope that by watching 
us go through it and knowing that organizations like RVAT, like Republican Voters Against Trump and Repair and all these uh, support networks are out there. Because for me, that really that really has made a difference. I was scared and I, you know, I was a career intel officer assigned there. I have, I am a lifelong Republican and it is scary. It is scary to think about what these people will do because they're very vindictive and you watch them throw others under the bus and you watch how they behave. And you think about your entire career that you've worked for and whether that gets completely destroyed in an instant. You know, when when they did it to me, I mean, General Kellogg went on national TV and flat out lied. I, I couldn't believe it, but then I can believe it because I know that the number one person that's his priority is the president and he was going to do whatever it took. Now, what I will say to my colleagues is now is a time and it really matters because at the end of the day, doing the right thing is really the bottom line. And we've all had these conversations behind closed doors. I know that they have a hard time keeping the president on message. I know all of these challenges. I've seen them face it. And it's hard, you know, to take the leap and walk away, but I can tell them that it's worth it. And there will be people who will have their back. It's not just the walking away. It's look at what happened to me. Right. I mean, I didn't just walk away. I had my whole life turned upside down wrecked, destroyed my, destroyed my family's happiness, my law license, my business, my reputation, my freedom. I mean, how about let's, I, I, all right, so let's start a, an organization, Republicans, Democrats for Michael Cohen. I mean, at least there are these organizations and I'm so happy to hear that. The, for example, the Republican voters against Trump, organizations that are willing to help because I had to do this on my own. And let me tell you something, it was it was it wasn't easy it actually it yeah. doesn't just break your heart i mean it rips out your soul what what went on here and here's the crazy thing the president doesn't give two shits about it he doesn't he doesn't care about anyone or anything other than himself and if that means that somebody goes to prison goes down for his dirty deeds he's willing to do it i mean look at for example reality winner uh look at what they did to me look at what they've done to so many other people he just doesn't care. So at least, at least people are getting together in order to stand tall. And I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. You're exactly right. They'll destroy you. They will. That's what, what they do. And they don't, he doesn't care. They'll destroy you unless they can get Laura Trump to call in to offer you money from the RNC to keep you quiet. But, she, but switch, <laughs> switching gears for a second. The New York Times published a story on Friday about how the administration blocked the CDC from requiring masks on public transportation with their fallback response being that you need different solutions for Missouri, Montana than you do for New York City. And if you can, walk me through what's happening behind the scenes here with the various shot callers where a stupid ass decision like this gets made. And why does it happen when it's so freaking obvious that it's the right thing to do. It's all part of the political spin and narrative, Michael. They, these conversations on face coverings have been going on for months. In fact, when that article dropped in the New York Times, I have to say I was pretty surprised that this was still ongoing. It was happening for months while I was there on the tenure, as you know, on my tenure on the task force. We had discussed the importance of facial coverings for critical infrastructure workers, for transportation workers. And quite frankly, the transportation industry itself came 
to us and said, can you back us on this? Because it will make it easier when we can say, hey, you know, it's a government mandate. And I can't believe that the White House leadership failed them. I mean, on a simple fundamental thing. But Olivia, forget about just transportation. The whole world, every country, right? every country is requiring that masks be worn, that they have now proven. I mean, someone told me a statistic the other day that there are more COVID-infected people in the White House and the administration than there are in New Zealand. And that blows my mind that this idiot in chief will still fight science because he needs to double down thinking that he's correct all the time. Well, guess what? He's clearly not. Am I right? You're absolutely right. I mean, you saw it with his unfortunate display after having COVID and showing up back at the White House and standing on the balcony and taking off his mask. He will not admit when he's wrong. He had an opportunity to change the narrative and instead he doubled down on it. It's costing us lives. I mean, even even now, I, I mean, I saw that he's touting Regeneron um, day in and day out. I wouldn't be shocked if down the road someone finds out that he bought stock in the company. But that's just, again, my opinion. What the fuck do I know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> let me just keep moving on that topic for a quick second. So also, <laughs> last week in The Times, there was a story about how under Vice President Pence, politics seeped into the task force meetings. Describe for me the various self-interested staffers who undermined the public health expert and what really went down that ultimately caused you to walk away from the administration. Well, you know, when you have this political dynamic at hand and you're constantly trying to battle and figure out how you navigate it, it's exhausting. And at some point you get to the point where you say, no matter what I do and no matter how hard I work, there's going to be these forces that are going to either override it and override the entire work of this task force. And it just, it, it got to a point where I just said, I can't, I just can't win. I have, I have fought this battle every single day with the task force meeting members daily. And it's exhausting. And at some point, I really believe like you hang in there because you think that you're making a difference. Or you're trying to make a difference and you're trying to do the right thing. But when that moment comes where you feel that you can no longer do your job effectively and in the manner that I hold myself to my own standards, then you know that it's probably time to go. And that was how I made the decision on that because things were happening that I fundamentally continued to not agree with. And you would see people on the more political senior White House staff roll their eyes during meetings, roll their eyes when Dr. Burks was doing a briefing on the data and the cases and talking about where the next hotspot would be. And, you know, you'd have FEMA on the VTC, you'd have Pete Gaynor up there sitting there listening because they were sort of being data driven on where the PPE would be shipped out to in states. But, you know, and then you'd hear the comments and then you'd be like, well, this is a state problem. We should blame, put the blame on them, let them be responsible. And that's kind of what you see with a lot of the guidelines and things you see it watered down. You see the Dr. Redfield get bullied and then you see them sort of constantly, they never want to own it. Right. That's the problem with the president and this White House on this pandemic response, which has been a colossal failure. They didn't want to own it. Therefore, they wouldn't take the leadership on it because that way they could place the blame on the states. That's the bottom line. And then the leadership, sadly, starts to tout Trump's position on it. And then they keep pushing back and then they continue to cause more tumult inside the meetings with 
the scientists, with people who are trying to give them, I guess, what would be life-saving ideology, and then they just go to the opposite extreme because they're trying to stay in Trump's good graces, simply because it's easier than fighting with him. That's exactly it. And that's probably what you experienced, correct? That's what I saw firsthand. I mean, that's what we used to experience at the Trump Organization. It was chaos and follow Trump's message. Stay on message. By the way, it's that stay on message stupidity that got me thrown into prison um, you know, for lying to Congress. But what I'd like for you to do is just to describe for a moment for me the experience of scientists like Rick Bright and the anti-science stance of the administration and the bullying and hostility that these folks face just by doing their jobs during the pandemic. I think bullying is a good word for it because these are people who have dedicated their entire careers, uh, quite frankly, for responding to moments like this, such as the COVID pandemic. And they know what they're talking about. This is their area of expertise. And there's a whole group of White House senior staff who walk around overriding it, which is ridiculous. They don't have the proper background to really fight a pandemic. And they do it because they are trying to either play down a narrative because it's an election year, or they're doing it for political favors or reasons. And I think this is kind of what you saw play out every single day with the doctors sort of being bullied in situations where they genuinely, I saw them get up and try to do the right thing. And who was the worst offender doing that? on behalf of the administration. Did you have Kushner ever come into those into those meetings? Did Was it Mark Meadows? Was it somebody else? All of the above, right? Right. Yeah. It was a combination of the president's inner circle. Yeah. They're, they're truly unbelievable. You know, no matter what he says, as stupid as it is, they just go along because it's just, people don't understand that. And I really want the listeners to understand this. Donald Trump's anger and vitriol, when it's directed at you, is so caustic that you're willing to sacrifice, and I give you so much credit for walking away because most people don't. They usually just get thrown away like I did. But it's so caustic that when he does it, it's so painful that you're willing to forego your moral compass in order just to stay away from it. I mean, I, there's no doubt I, you, you could say that's exactly what happened. I'm sure you will, because that's what happened to everybody. I mean, and I saw this firsthand for more than a decade. That's exactly what I saw. And unfortunately, you know, this had a direct impact on the well-being of American lives, especially on this topic when it comes to COVID. It's truly unbelievable. Olivia, when the president was first diagnosed with COVID and the subsequent infection throughout the White House... What was going through your mind knowing that his cavalier approach to this virus finally struck his fat ass? I was thinking I was surprised that it took this long, to be honest, because the way people behaved. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's complete recklessness. Go ahead, please continue. No, I think it was it was just, you know, he he leads <laughs> and the example he sets follows and trickles down throughout the organization. Right. And so people were very cavalier. They didn't wear a mask. We were all at risk the entire time when clearly the virus was spreading and it's very contagious. And we all know that. And we're being briefed on it. And we're walking around the White House sitting on top of each other. I mean, we you can only socially distance so much in the West Wing. It's a small place. There's just no room. <laughs> 
So, uh, but you don't, you wouldn't see people. There weren't, people weren't sitting at their desks with masks. That's not what was happening here. And you have to think about all the outbreaks that happen with Secret Service and, you know, all the people that are being put at risk behind the scenes. That is what is really heartbreaking here. I mean, think about it. Secret Service, they're there to protect the president, to protect his life. And this ass clown just turns around and puts them at risk. I mean, to me, I don't know why they all just don't pick themselves up like you and walk out and say, you know what, Mr. President, it's one thing. We will protect you from anyone that wants to cause you any harm. And that's what they're dedicated. They are the best of the best. But we cannot accept it if it's you trying to cause yourself harm. I just don't understand why they don't pick themselves up and then just say, if you're not going to follow the same guidelines as everybody else in the world should be following, then we just can't protect you from yourself. Right. I mean, it's, that's, that's, that's exactly it. It's how do you protect someone who, who doesn't care about following the protocols that are being told day in and day out should be followed? You can't. And the worst part is you can't even protect yourself because he doesn't care about you. Right. So it's just a, it's just a constant, constant merry-go-round on this vicious cycle that people get into. And I feel terrible for the secret service people who serve and they really, they're just doing their job, right. They really have no choice. And that, for example, that joyride that the president took around Walter Reed. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, how dare you put those people at risk so that you can go out and and try to show that you're the tough guy, that you're not sick and wave at your supporters and put even the cops at risk and hospital staff when you really, especially right now, need to be isolated and quarantined in your room, in your office there that they have you in. Well, I've been very clear when I turned around and said that that was a one of the dumbest stunts I've seen Trump pull yet, but it wasn't to go out to his supporters. He actually sees himself, and maybe it was the steroids, as the monarch. He saw himself as, you know, the Kim Jong-uns, and it's not right for his loyal subjects, as he said, were standing on the street for hours. Some slept there overnight, and then all of a sudden, I had to come out and show them the love. I had to show them love. What a bunch of bullshit. This is all to feed that insatiable ego that he has. And it's part of my book, Disloyal. It's all about Trump derangement syndrome. But I want to ask you, how bad is the outbreak in the White House? And how far has it really gone? And how much wider is the infection nationally from Trump, considering the sheer volume of people they were in contact with prior to his diagnosis? I mean, I think you saw his plain disregard for human life when he went off and did these fundraisers still untraveled, fully knowing that he had been exposed to one of his main advisors, Hope Hicks. And I just think that, you know, and then I think it's likely more extensive than what they've told us. I've certainly seen them play it down in the past. And this has been going on for months where people have lived in fear, especially the more junior staff, that they would be exposed on the trips and rallies, in fact, because, you know, it's not just the president. The president gets to stand up there far away on a stage from other people. But his traveling party, his advanced staff, and all the work and the people behind the scenes that it takes to staff a presidential event or a vice presidential event, the footprint is massive. And you've got to think about all these people 
who are sitting there behind the scenes who are also being exposed, whether, you know, whether they're, they want to or not, this is a job they're in and he is putting all of them at risk. And that is just what's just so disgraceful about this. And that goes for the supporters at his rallies too. You see them, they're not wearing masks or standing right next to each other. And it's what, what's most egregious is these people are going to leave those rallies. They're going to go back to their community. They're going to go back home. They're going to infect their neighbor. They're going to infect possibly like the schools. It's just never ending. And it, it just, it, it is horrible leadership from the Oval Office. But that is who Donald Trump is. Let me ask you this question then. How much is Mark Meadows, who I can't stand, to blame for the virus's spread throughout the White House? I mean, for God's sakes, the guy became chief of staff. Fucking do something. I mean, it's his job in order to convince the president it, to protect the people that are around him, himself included. And as I said earlier to you, I watched him take the mask off during an interview and act like a complete asshole. And nobody wanted to, nobody wanted him to take that mask off. And he was so insulted knowing that if he didn't do that, he would go back to the Oval Office. The president would have seen it because that's where he gets his news and his information from, is watching television. And if he saw Mark Meadows giving a speech or making a statement with a mask on, that would probably cost him his job. And so the spineless wonder over there decides that he's going to play to a party of one and take the mask off. And when they said no, he called the meeting, he called the interview over, and he just walked away. How much is Mark to blame? That's a classic example of the, the culture of fear that I talk about and the willingness of the inner circle of the president to pander and support this type of environment and behavior. And uh, quite honestly, I mean, Mark Meadows is around the president nonstop. We don't know how contagious the president is or not, but just by fear, I mean, it, it's also just disrespectful to behave that way when you're, you, you know you've been close to someone that's been exposed to the virus and has been sick with COVID. And to stand up there in close proximity and then scoff at the idea, once again, of wearing a mask. This has been the fundamental failure of this administration from day one. They politicized the mask wearing and they, they were scared and they thought it would play to their favor and they continue to double down on it. And it is a basic thing that the doctors have all said is critical. It's just a, it's step number one until we get a vaccine and we get additional therapeutics. But step number one for this pandemic is as simple as wearing a mask. And it's so easy. It's so easy. Just put the stupid thing on and wear it. Why do you think then that they're still blocking contact tracing from the original Rose Garden super spreader event? Quite frankly, I think that they are scared of their, the truth and reality of finding out that more people are positive and they don't really want that reported and they don't want that to stem directly from what you know Dr. Fauci himself has even called was a White House super spreading event. But all of these people have families. They're, I'm sure they're not going home. And even if they go home and they're single, I'm sure that they have a significant other or they have friends that they go out with. I mean, they're willing to risk somebody's life all in order to appease one person. 
I'm sure that they went and they got tested. You know, the funniest thing that I saw the other day is Trump look into the camera and tell the American people that we're not sure yet. I haven't gotten my results back. Now, my daughter takes uh, my son are continuously taking that 15 minute test. They go to one of the medical places here in the city. They take the test 15 minutes later. They get the result. Donald Trump, who had 50 people on top of him, getting into Marine One, flying to his own private hospital, can't get the results of a COVID test? And we're supposed to buy this bullshit as he looks straight to the camera, into the eyes of the American people, and bold-faced lies? I mean, what, it, Olivia, do me a favor. Walk us through what a typical COVID task force meeting with the president would have been like. Because I know that he's famously unable to pay attention to anything that doesn't involve himself. So what is he like during these meetings? And does he even attend them is what I'm really curious to know. He didn't, he didn't attend a lot of them is what I will say. And, you know, you know him better than any one of us. He has an inability to focus. He is is very distracted consistently. He shows up to these meetings and really it's whatever is going on in the back of his head or whatever it's happened at the moment. And it's really about him. And I know, I mean, I feel sometimes like a broken record when I say that, that he really doesn't care about anyone by himself, but it is, it's because it's the truth. It's the way he behaves. It's what he says. And, you know, he's shown up to meetings where I have seen him and where he talks about, you know, anything but what's on the agenda and he talks about things that we aren't there to discuss the task force is really there to do respond right so so i acknowledge this i was never there for any of these meetings correct correct okay i'm going to tell you exactly how this meeting took place everybody's sitting at the table waiting and usually 10 15 minutes or so goes by and he finally shows up and he sits down and then the first person speaks, whoever's running that meeting. And within about a minute to two minutes maximum, he's already interrupting and he's digressing to something that is completely unrelated to the purpose of the meeting at hand. Am, am I correct? Nailed it. Nailed it 100%. I mean, this is exactly what we used to have to deal with at the Trump Organization, even if we were talking about a mega real estate deal. If there was something on golf that was going on, he would switch from a mega million dollar real estate deal to talking about who showed up to the golf course or when it became campaign time, how many people showed up to his rally or how many times his name appeared in the newspaper based upon birtherism. I mean, the guy is just a, he's just an ass. I mean, there's no other way to put it, you know, and today as so take that scenario and couple it with a with a pandemic. Yes, exactly. And that is why it's so dangerous that he is the president of the it's, United States. I mean, this, this, well said. Today, we spoke to Jeff Timmer from um, the Lincoln Project about the kidnap plot against Governor Gretchen Whitmer and how Trump's rhetoric was ultimately responsible for what happened. Now, as someone who has worked at the highest level of domestic security, what were your warnings to the vice president about the rise of domestic extremism? 
It was very clear early on that the Homeland, you know, Department of Homeland Security and FBI have been reporting on this and they have flagged the fact that domestic terrorism is increasingly on the rise in this country and it is a problem. And we will continue to face this kind of threat. If I, I mean, I personally, other probably other than second to cyber, cyber, which is a, a severe threat, you know, that can affect election security and all of that. I personally believe that domestic terrorism is the biggest threat to our country right now. And I do believe that the president's rhetoric and his, his enabling of a platform to some of these extremists, especially the far right, has encouraged this kind of behavior. And, you know, he, he has personally gone after the governor of Michigan very openly and very publicly. And people pay attention to that and people listen. And when you're the president, words matter. I mean, liberate Michigan. Do you need to say more than that? And that's what this group was expecting to do <laughs> by kidnapping and attempting, you know, or planning to kill her. I mean, this is just, this is wild. And Vice President Pence is not innocent of this as well. I mean, as the vice president, I know he has people like yourself that were around him, that were advising him that these extremists are the single greatest threat right now to our country's national security. Correct. What was his comment to you? You know, I certainly briefed on mass shooting events that were related to far-right extremism and domestic terrorism. For example, the shooting in my own hometown of El Paso uh, that happened. And I, you know, I was part of the response to that and briefed on it. And I will say that I was, I was disappointed that what I saw in terms of the messaging coming out of the White House was a purposely purposely done narrative to avoid calling it for what it was in many of these situations. Olivia, you actually go further than that. You mentioned that when these groups go against Trump's preferred law and order narrative, Correct. that he goes, the first thing he does is he blames Antifa in hopes of pivoting attention, right, away from these extremists. But ultimately, it's Trump who has been encouraging these groups over and over again. What did you see? That's exactly what I saw firsthand and his inability to call it out for what it is. And they would not, they would not refer to it as white supremacists. They wouldn't refer to it as a white supremacist who wrote a manifesto and drove several hours. We, we know this right to El Paso specifically looking for a place where he could target Hispanics and they still won't call it out. And there's been numerous incidents. I mean, I only mentioned that one because that one is very near and dear to my heart being my hometown that I grew up in. And, you know, my aunt was in that Walmart when this shooting happened. Wow. So wow. picture me sitting in the White House, watching all of this happen, and their their inability to just call it straight out for what it is, even though the law enforcement community is telling them this is what it is, flat out. And why is he not listening to that? It doesn't play to the narrative. These are people that I know that people like Stephen Miller and him believe that this is part of his base. It's votes. It's his voters. Look, Steve Miller is just a sick human being in every single respect. I'll never forget the, at the very beginning of Trump's presidency, I was sitting in the Oval Office and Trump turned around and he said to me, so what did you think about the Muslim ban? I said, well, I said, Mr. 
Mr. President, you can't ban a religion from coming. It's one thing, okay, you want to ban someone from a country, say Syria, where there's a lot of things going on right now that could be of national security, but you can't ban a religion. He goes, yeah, yeah, that, that, that was Steve Bannon and Steve Miller. And so he goes, uh, you know, we'll, we'll try to, we'll, we'll get it right the next time. I'm saying to myself, I've watched Steve Miller make these racist acts over and over again since the first day that he got yes. there. Have you ever seen anything like that? That's how you end up in the scenarios of the wording of the shithole countries. That's how you end up in meetings where people are saying, "We, you don't want a bunch of little Iraqi communi communities around the U.S. sprouting up when it came to refugees. I have witnessed this firsthand, and it is it is disgusting and it is infuriating and upsetting. I mean, Trump just lies about it. Steve Miller then takes those lies and he and he just puts them down on paper and he validates Trump's lies with these speeches instead of trying to create something that could be positive for everybody. He takes Trump's craziness and he just enhances it. Let me ask you this question then. Do you think that Trump worries about another attack from these domestic extremists? And how does he differentiate these boogaloo groups from the more pro-government vigilantes like the Proud Boys and um, the groups in Kenosha who he constantly praises? Here's the problem with the president. He thinks that he is the president for law and order. And he thinks that the chaos in cities and things like that, as long as these protests and stuff continue, that it plays in its favor. So he's going to encourage this type of behavior because he feels like then he can stay, he, you know, he's backing the police and he's backing law enforcement who are facing the chaos and the violence in these communities. And to that community, I would say this, I am very pro-law enforcement. I've spent you know, my career in national security and I come from Homeland Security as well. I've traveled, I've met with a lot of the law enforcement fusion centers. They are critical in every response and I have the utmost respect for them. But it is, it is the hypocrisy that I have seen firsthand in this White House where they tout this and they tout the fact that the law enforcement backs them and that the law enforcement community is supportive of the president. And then they turn around and tout the fact that they will put law enforcement in harm's way for to 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 encourage this kind of chaos and incidents that actually put them at risk, right? Because it hurts everyone. It's not it's it's the protesters, it's the looters, it's the law enforcement. Everybody gets hurt in the end. I mean, I don't even understand when Trump came out with this whole concept that he's the law and order president. I mean, basically what that was was protest. And there's always a small segment of bad people that were doing bad things. But the vast, vast majority were out there for peaceful protest based upon a Black Lives Matter scenario of another black man or black woman being unnecessarily killed. So I don't believe that Trump has the, the um, law enforcement on his side. Yeah, they still have to stand on the street as the asshole drives around from Walter Reed, you know, to do his victory lap. But I don't think law enforcement is behind Donald Trump. And I, I'm pretty sure that when they are by themselves in that voting booth, that they're going to be voting for Joe Biden 
because you're right. He puts their lives, their families' lives, and their friends and everybody associated with them at risk too based upon his refusal to do something as simple as wear a mask. Because it's not about anybody else. Don't worry. He's now, he's, he's immune. He's got, I think I have the antibodies. I'm immune. The idiot wants to come out wearing a Superman shirt. The problem is they probably couldn't <laughs> find one in his size. That's why he, that's why the stunt didn't go off. Let me ask you, during last week's vice presidential debate, you posted an emotional plea for the trolls to leave you alone for a moment. I mean, this whole trolling thing is out of control. What was happening and what was being said to you? Because obviously one of the prices that you pay for speaking out, and no one knows this better than I, against this administration and specifically Captain Chaos, is the vitriol from his toxic keyboard warriors. But how bad has it gotten for you? And what should people know? I will say that that night, and I, I can only, I assume that it was because the vice presidential debate was taking place and they know that I worked for the vice president and I've been very outspoken about uh, against the president and his behavior and everything that has happened, especially when it came to this pandemic and the colossal failure that the response has been. But it is, it is ugly and it is very offensive language, things that I actually didn't even, <laughs> I, I, I didn't even, I don't think I ever <laughs> had to conceptualize that people, the types of things that people would say. When my life, and still does on a daily basis when it gets crazy by these, you know, texting tough guys, what happens is they go so crazy that you would think that they're like Hannibal Lecter. I mean, they get into some really deep, crazy stuff. <laughs> It's so wrong, especially when the first lady is be best, right? Right. Let's stop bullying. Right. Okay. You don't like my political views? No problem. How about don't listen to the show? Don't buy the book. Oh, don't respond to me if I put out a tweet. Go your own way. You be you and let me be me. So you tell us, what is it that they're saying and just how disgusting their behavior is or has been towards you? It is, it is hideous. And I will say that... Yeah. Probably some of the most disgusting things, and I'll, I'll be honest, Michael. I actually, the second I start to read something that is heading that direction, I just I move past it, and I just try not to look at it. And you know, you can't help it. Sometimes you click on something, and there it is, and then you quickly have to like swipe it and just disregard it and put it away um, and move past it. But you know, talking about you know, I'm I am a dog lover. I have pets, and talking about the types of stuff that they would personally like to do to me in front of my husband while hanging my pets and the types of things that they talk about in terms of that is just quite frankly, so repulsive and scary. It, it's horrifying. Tough guys that now want to take it out on an animal. Well done folks. Well, general Michael Hayden recently spoke out against the president. And for those that don't know, general Hayden is the former head of the CIA and I know it's a complex issue, but from a national security standpoint, what keeps General Hayden up at night most about Donald Trump? And what keeps you up at night thinking about four more potential years of Trump and his handling of national security? It's the fact that he's completely unfit for office. We will be in a much darker place than we already are now in terms of our standing globally, in terms of foreign adversaries who clearly consider him to be, you know, 
you I've seen this phrase and it's true. He's their puppet. And it's dangerous. And it's dangerous how divisive uh, we have become as a country because he has completely gone out of his way to encourage this. And it is completely dangerous to, quite frankly, have someone who has, you know, access to the nuclear codes when he's completely drugged up. Think about that. I, I, would, I would prefer not to. Think about the fact that right now, I mean, that is scary. Yeah. That is scary. It's very scary. What was your exposure to the president's, I like to call them the troika of protectors, starting with my friend Mark Meadows, but also with my second best friend, Bill Barr, as well as Pompeo. Why do you think, I can't stand all three of them. Why do you think America still cares about those goddamn Hillary emails? And to me, it's a sign that they're looking at defeat and have nothing else to, you know, to trot out. But what's your, what's your exposure to these, to these three fools? I think they're desperate. I think it's desperation. And it's desperateness. And in terms of A.G. Barr, his behavior during the Lafayette Square incident says everything I need to know about him and I, what I've seen. I mean, he is willing to go along with things that are, quite frankly, egregious and not law and order, which is what the pinnacle of what he should be representing as the attorney general. But to stand out there and observe the protesters and then give the orders and encourage this sort of violent clearing of these protesters when I had personally seen them protesting peacefully tells you everything you need to know about the person who is running the Department of Justice for our country. I mean, I remember there was a story about a newscaster that was actually hit with a rubber bullet. Th those things hurt. I mean, yeah, it, it, unless it hits you in the head, it's probably not going to kill you, but they, they, they hurt. And Trump just completely dismissed it. But then again, so did Meadows, so did Barr, so did Pompeo. I mean, the callousness to me is just overwhelming. Did you see stuff like this every single day? Every day. And how did you deal with it? It's emotionally exhausting. Tell me a little bit. How, how did you deal with it? Because I know I used to come home from the Trump organization and I was wiped. And two seconds after I would get home, I would generally get a phone call from Trump about something else that was on his mind, despite the 50 times I had been in his office throughout the day. And then not to mention the last call at night was generally from him. So it kind of ruined my sleep pattern as well, because I always had something on my mind. Tell me about your experience. Tell me about you know, what was going on through your head as you were witnessing this chaos that Trump sows in the White House each and every day with um, our troika of protectors. It was a very toxic environment. And you know, you're sitting there and you're trying to do work, hard work. Hard work, especially at times, especially in the world that I operated in, that really matters because it's people's lives. And you're really looking at the security for American lives in our country. And it it was draining at times. And, and to be frank, it, it caused more work. The political dynamics and all of these forces and the shenanigans, for lack of a better word, that went on behind the scenes, especially when it came to the COVID response was exhausting because not only did you have a pandemic that the doctors and everyone's trying to work on and you're working on coordinating policy, but you're also dealing 
with this type of environment where you're constantly stressed about what's going to happen next, what's the president going to say next, that it's going to undermine everything that you worked on yesterday, and then what's going to be said in a task force meeting that bullies a doctor, and then you're going to get hit the reset button on a policy or a CDC guidance that, quite frankly, these people shouldn't even be weighing in on to begin with because they are not the scientists and the experts. The CDC is a public health agency. What about Ivanka? Did she ever attend any of these meetings? Did she ever put her two cents in? Very rarely. I did not see her engage. And what about Kaylee McEnany? She was there at a lot of the meetings. She is obviously in charge of, she is the master of spin for the president right now. She was there. Kellyanne Conway, Jared Kushner has certainly played a big role in all of these all of these uh, conversations and dynamics. What was the dumbest thing any one of the three of them actually said at one of these meetings? <laughs> I think what I would say is maybe it was more the sentiment of the lack of the lack of taking the virus seriously is really the bottom line for a lot of these people. The fact that they were so dismissive of it, the fact that they would say things like it's overblown or I don't care. I don't care about that. We, I don't all, care about all that. of them playing to a party of one as we watch the death toll increase day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out. And now Kaylee McEnany herself, you know, is now infected with COVID. Just, you know, for for bright for bright people, they're really they're just beyond stupid's not even the right word for it. But as we come to a, a conclusion here. I want to ask you one final question. What should people know about the fight Stephen Hahn has on his hands to keep the FDA from being infected by Donald Trump, along with his ability to put out a vaccine that is both safe and not a political ploy for the president's reelection? I can tell you that that fight is a, a monumental, enormous mountain that Dr. Hahn continues to hang in there and climb and fight for the right uh, for the protection of the American people in terms of the vaccine. And I can tell you that I have a lot of respect for the FDA and the regulators and everyone there. And from what I have personally seen of Dr. Hahn, he has been, he has shown integrity and he has supported and listened to the people behind him at his, at his at the agency he leads, but he is in a very challenging position. Yeah, because the president wants what the president wants. Look, I speak to a lot of people, and, and I'll speak for myself now as well. If tomorrow they came out with a vaccine, I don't want to take it. I don't want to be the first. I don't want to be a trial or a test pig on Trump's vaccine because it hasn't been properly tested. And unless somebody like Dr. Hahn turns around and tells me that it has passed through all the FDA requirements. I mean, think about how childish, how ignorant and irresponsible the president is being when he, said, when he says this is now called Project Warp Speed. Okay, him with all of this warp speed and, and nonsense, Space Force. I mean, it, I don't know if he's writing a comic book or he's actually running the country. But I would not feel comfortable having a vaccine presented to me to put into my body before I know exactly what the, what the ramifications of that vaccine in my body can cause. 
I want to be properly advised on what the, you know, what the contraindications could be. I don't want to just close my eyes and say, well, Donald Trump told me that it's going to be successful and that there are no problems, that no side effects. So therefore, because Donald said so, well, now I'm going to accept it. Um, nah, I don't, I don't think so. And I think most people are thinking the same way that I am. I hope so, because I would say directly to every single American that Donald Trump is the last person they should be listening to when it comes to the vaccine. And quite frankly, until the doctors come out and endorse and say, yes, okay, we have a vaccine, the hard work that has been put in these past months or year or however long it's been. I think that I've seen the most recent thing, my Dr. Fauci and others have said it's likely looking like 2021, which is the timeline that is in line with what I heard early on. Even as hard and as fast as they were working, that seems fair to make sure that it goes through all the tests and trials that are traditional and right and regulatory for a safe vaccine. And what I would say is until someone like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Hanna and others come forward and say, we have a vaccine that is safe. There is no way I would tell anyone in my circle or my loved ones to take a vaccine that came out of, you know, whatever Donald Trump special he's concocted behind the scenes until these doctors say they are standing behind it and that it's safe. Look, I have total respect for Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, Dr. Hahn, and all of those that have the the fortitude to stand up to this Donald Trump force of vitriol that people who do not go along with everything that he says or wants to do, I give them the utmost of credit and I pray to God that they continue to do that. And I thank you, Olivia, for, you know, for your time and for educating uh, the listeners today, because what you have to say is just so, so important. So thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. Olivia Troyer's experience on the COVID task force is symptomatic of Trump's larger war on science and expertise. It's been pointed out time and again that the only reality allowed in the White House is the one that adheres to the narrative created by Donald J. Trump, facts to be damned. As such, Troyer and people like Miles Taylor and others pose a direct threat to the president in their insistence on doing things based on science and reason and according to the spirit of the law. If you hold such views in the presence of Donald Trump, he will weed you out. In the end, he has gotten what he wants, a circle of yes men and women who enable and encourage his most dangerous instincts. And it is the reason why we have ended up with nearly 250,000 people dead and millions infected. Before we go, I wanna make sure you tune in tomorrow night, post-debate, for a special bonus episode of Mea Culpa, where we investigate the financial crimes, corruption, and sleazy conflicts of interest surrounding Donald J. Trump. It promises to be a revealing and frankly satisfying hour, which hopefully will help add insult to injury and bury him further before election day. And thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen, produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustad. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please register to vote. I'll do my part on this podcast, but to truly make a difference, you must vote this man out of office. 
So if you're not registered, go do it now and come out and make sure that you vote on November 3rd. <laughs>